Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, and Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent off by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came, through, came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was the with the proconsul Sergius Paulos, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elmaeus the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. And can I say what an enormous pleasure it is for me to be here uh, this morning? Not only because when I left England, there was snow all over the ground, and here I just see sun, sun, sun. Uh, but also it's a chance for me to say thank you. Thank you for your partnership with us in church planting in Manchester. Thank you for your partnership with us in renovating a building we owned. Uh, we heard there was a team of youth from a church in sunny Florida who wanted to come and spend a week sleeping on the floor of a decrepit old building in North Manchester and making it look beautiful. We thought that was just all made up, and, and it's true. Uh, and Jacob and the others who led that team are absolute legends. So thank you, thank you, Covenant Church Palm Bay. Uh, let me pray for us, and then let's dive into that passage. Lord Jesus, thank you that you speak to us, and you speak to us today as we open up your written word. Lord, would we meet with you in your word, we pray, and would none of us leave unchanged, we ask. Amen. Well, keep Acts 12 uh, to 13 open in front of you. Uh, it's important to know where I come from, coming from the UK. The, the UK is the land of Wycliffe, Cranmer, Ridley, Knox, Sibs, John Owen, George Whitfield, John and Charles Wesley. I was born in Northwest London and just 18 miles away from the hospital in which I was brought into the world is the room in which one of the greatest statements of the Christian faith was compiled what became known as the Westminster Standards, that the confessional statement of your own denomination, the PCA. Yet in the UK today, Christianity is treated as little more than a historical and cultural relic. 
UK church attendance has plummeted. It was 33% in 1900. It is less than 10% today. And that is across all denominations, Protestant, Catholic, liberal, everything. Protestant church attendance is just 6.5% nationally. And Bible-believing, gospel-holding church attendance, it is just a fraction of that. For, for my own city, the city of Manchester, you need to halve each of those figures. Less than 1% of the population of Manchester will be in a gospel teaching church this morning. Spiritually, the, the United Kingdom is best described as being post-Christian. The, the prevailing worldview is post-modern. Little is regarded as absolute. And there is only a fading remnant of our Judeo-Christian heritage. As the pastor Mark Sayers puts it, post-Christianity, it, it attempts to move beyond Christianity while simultaneously feasting on its fruits. Post-Christian culture, Sayers says, attempts to retain the solace of faith while gutting it of its costs, commitments, and restraints. That is what the United Kingdom is like. All the benefits of faith without any of the responsibilities. Now, I recognize you might be sitting here thinking, phew, thank God I am on this side of the Atlantic. And according to the latest Pew Research, 87% of Floridians believe in God. 68% of Floridians claim to attend church at least several times a year, and 71% claim to pray at least weekly. So you are in a very different position to me back in Manchester, but you need to know that church attendance is falling in Florida, not going up. And history teaches us that what happens in one part of the English-speaking world, it inevitably travels to the rest of the English-speaking world as well. So make no mistake, as secular culture marches on, the church in the United States will face similar challenges to the ones that we face in the United Kingdom. Which means that in a very real sense, when I boarded that plane on Thursday, I came to you, Marty McFly style, back from the future. <laughs> I'm here today to share where the church in Palm Bay may be heading. So, so what's to be done? Should we just wring our hands in horror? Should we give up? Is there any hope for us? Well, I want to suggest this morning that there is. The UK, it is ravaged by materialism, by relativism, by hedonism. It's a place where the attitude of the majority is to simply do as everyone sees fit. Does that sound familiar? Well, it was the exact same attitude as you would have found in the first century Roman world. 
The world into which Jesus sent his disciples with the command, go, go and make disciples of all nations. The challenge that we face in the UK and the challenge that you may face very soon here in Palm Bay, it is no different to the challenge that those first disciples faced 2,000 years ago. The question is, how are we going to respond? The pastor John Piper famously said that there are only three responses to the Great Commission. Go, send, or disobey. What are we going to do? What are you going to do? We don't want to disobey, and so we must be committed either to going or to sending. And that is exactly what the church in the first century did. Let's dive into Acts chapter 13. We're witnesses here to a meeting of the church in Antioch. Now, Antioch is in modern-day Turkey, and this was quite a new church plant. You can read about it being planted back in Acts chapter 11. Apparently, fierce, savage persecution had broken out in Jerusalem, and the Christians from Jerusalem, they had scattered all around the world. Now, most of them, they spread the gospel amongst Jewish people. But some, some packed their bags and they traveled to the city of Antioch. Verse 21 of chapter 11, just look back at that with me. It tells us, verse 21, that the Lord's hand was upon them and a great number believed. And so... A church was planted in the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Now, what we have to do from Acts chapter 11, we need to zoom forwards several years and we find that fledgling church plant sending and planting. I like to think of it as the Antioch project. And this morning, I want us to notice three things about the Antioch project. Three lessons we learn about sending from the church in Antioch. Three things that we need to take on board if Covenant Palm Bay wants to be a sending church like Antioch. Three things that I want for City Church as we seek to be a sending church. Firstly, firstly, sending is driven by worship. Sending is driven by worship. Uh, Look at what's going on in verses 1 to 3. We're told that the leaders of the church, verse 2, were worshipping the Lord and fasting. Now notice, in in verse 1, we're given the names of the leaders. Why? You know, Luke, the author of Acts, he's very precise in in what he includes in his two-volume work. And he hardly ever gives names in the book of Acts. So so why does he stop here and give these names? We'll we'll take a look at the names. Firstly, Barnabas. Now, Barnabas, we know, was a Jew. Acts chapter 4 tells us that he was born in Cyprus, but that he later moved to Jerusalem. Next, we have Simeon, who we're told was called Niger. Now, Niger is Latin for black. 
So Simeon was almost certainly a black North African. Uh, Lucius is next up, and we're told that he is from Cyrene, which is also in North Africa, modern-day Libya. Uh, Then we're told about Menaean. We're told that Menaean was a lifelong friend of Herod. Now, Now, that word for lifelong friend, it actually means that he was someone who nursed with Herod. So Menaean, he grew up in the royal household. Menaean was posh. He was the upper crust. He was a man with means who knew people in high places. And then we have Saul, who was a Jew from Tarsus in modern-day Turkey. Now, do you see what we learn about the church in Antioch? The church was mixed. It was mixed socially. It was mixed economically. It was mixed racially. And Luke wants us to see that that diversity in the church, it was represented in their leadership too. You know, when City Church launched almost nine years ago, we started with 27 adults and five children. 26 of those adults were white British, One was Iranian. Now that is not what the city of Manchester looks like. We have over 180 languages spoken by long-term residents in Manchester. So, So we began as a church praying for diversity. And God has wonderfully answered our prayers. Today we have believers from Ghana, Kenya, Nigeria, India, China, the United States of America, Taiwan, Indonesia, the Philippines, Iran, Zimbabwe, Argentina, Kuwait, South Africa, and throughout Europe. In total, we have 43 different nationalities at City Church. And we're praying that God would raise up leaders from among those nationalities. Because a church always ends up looking like its leadership. Looking like those who teach and lead the church in worship. But but, but why? why? Why is that important to be diverse, to have racial, social, and economic diversity. I want to suggest two reasons. Reason number one, because that is what the church in glory looks like. That is what the church that God brought through Jesus' precious blood looks like. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation. That's what Revelation chapter 5 teaches us. But you know, there's a second reason why it's important. Much more subtle, but it, but it is right here in Acts chapter 13. It is really, really important. Multicultural, multiracial churches are the best churches to reach out cross-culturally. Listen, it, it was no coincidence that the first church ever to gather cross-culturally was also the first church to send out cross-culturally. If we're serious about sending 
highly contextualized, gospel-driven missionaries to plant churches in new places, rather than just sending out missionaries who will be like fish out of water, then we need to gather in, in the place we are here in Palm Bay, back in Manchester, we need to gather in cross-culturally. Anyway, we find the multicultural, multiracial leaders of the church in Antioch, verse two, they're worshiping God. Now, some Christian books, some Christian speakers, they give the impression that mission is the ultimate aim of the church. Mission has become the sort of in adjective. People write books about missional churches, of people being on mission, missional people being in communities of mission. We're living on mission. I'm sure you've heard that, haven't you? But mission is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. John Piper put it so memorably. He said, mission exists because worship doesn't. We human beings, we were designed to worship God, but because we don't, Christians are sent out into the world to call on people to do the very thing they were created to do. And the only way we can do that is through the glorious good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. You see, mission is a means to an end, the end of bringing people to do what they were created to do. But here's the thing that comes out of this passage, and I think it's really important. Worship is not only the end of mission, it is also the driver of mission too. It was as the leaders worshipped the Lord and fasted, verse 2, that they sent. Just before City Church launched, we were running through a series of sermons looking at the vision and values of the church. And after one of the sermons, one of the members of the launch team, one of the members of the 27, came up to me. She had recently moved up to Manchester to be involved in planting the church. And she said, Ralph, I really wish that I had the same passion and love for Manchester that you do. Maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you think that God might be calling you to cross-cultural mission. Or maybe you feel like God might be calling you to help plant a church somewhere else in Florida. But you hear missionaries come here to to Palm Bay, you you hear me speaking today, and you think, well, hey, I I just could never have the sort of passion that Ralph has for Manchester, or or that missionary has for Beijing. I, I could never even have the passion to go to Orlando. Let me be honest with you. My love for the city of Manchester fluctuates wildly. I wasn't born there, I was born in London. And my wife's family, they're from Cornwall. Now, I don't expect you to know what Cornwall is. Cornwall is a small county. If you want to visualize what Cornwall is like, Cornwall is our answer to Martha's Vineyard. And that's where my wife's parents live. It's 320 miles away from Manchester. Now, I know for you, that's you know, a short day's drive. For us, it's literally the other end of the country, okay? It's a long way away. Cornwall is far more beautiful than Manchester. 
It has better beaches than Manchester. We don't have any. It has nicer houses than Manchester. And for Anna and I, it has a first-class child service, caring service, because Anna's parents live there. Sometimes I wish we lived in Cornwall. But here's the thing. My heart, my desire for Manchester directly correlates with my worship of God. Uh, Samuel Zweymer was a missionary to the Middle East in the 19th century. He said this, listen to it. He said, the great pioneer missionaries, they all had inverted homesickness. This passion to call that country their home, which was most in need of the gospel. In this passion, all other passions died. Before this vision, all other visions faded. This call drowned out all other voices. You know, when I worship God, I want his glory. I I want all mouths to declare his praises. And my passion for an easy life in Cornwall it just fades. And I call the gritty, dirty centre of Manchester home because I long for the 2.8 million people of that city to declare his praises. You see, worship is the end of mission. That's why I'm in Manchester. But you know, worship is also the driver of mission as well. That is what will lead us to send and go. Secondly though, Sending means sacrifice. You know, chapter 13, it isn't the first time that the church in Antioch send out Saul and Barnabas. Look back at chapter 11 with me. Uh, The church has only been around for a year or so, and then news reaches the church in Antioch, verse 28 of chapter 11, that a famine would ravage the entire Roman world. Now, the famine hit Jerusalem particularly hard. So verse 30, the church in Antioch, they send out Barnabas and Saul with a financial gift to Jerusalem. You know, being a missional church means being willing to sacrifice. And for the church in Antioch, that meant sacrificing financially. They decided not to buy that new horse and chariot. They decided not to invest in that new bigger villa. They decided to cash in their season tickets at the Antioch Arena because they wanted to meet the needs of brothers and sisters in Christ who lived hundreds of miles away. Can I say, you here at Covenant Palm Bay, you are already a great model of that to churches like City Church in Manchester. You already give generously of your finances to mission around the world. Through your generosity, several years ago, City Church Manchester was able to employ Pete Evans to be trained up to lead our first church plant into the north of the city. Two and a half years ago, we sent out that church, 33 adults and children. Today, there are now 120 people worshipping at that church in North Manchester, including a good number from very, very working class backgrounds from the poorest parts of Manchester. That was possible because of your financial sacrifice here in Palm Bay. 
You're an example to us of that. Your generosity has inspired us so much so that we have now set a target that by 2027, we at City Church Manchester will be giving away 25% of our member giving to support church planting throughout Manchester, North England and beyond. That money has already been used to plant three churches in Manchester. It's currently being used to plant a church in Fairfield, Connecticut, over here in the United States. It's being used to plant churches around the Arabian Peninsula through a partner in Dubai. It's about to be used to to see churches planted in Lagos, Nigeria. But you know, City Church and Covenant Church Palm Bay, we need to be doing that more and more and more. If we want to see the post-Christian world, one for Christ, we, we will need to send financially. And that will mean you and I making sacrifices, forgoing things we would otherwise buy for ourselves. You know, it's not just financial sacrifices that the church in Antioch made. At the end of chapter 12, Barnabas and Saul return from their mission to Jerusalem. I included that in the reading because I'd like you to imagine what the church in Antioch thought when they saw Barnabas and Saul walk in through the back doors of the church. Great, it's it's Barnabas back. Barnabas, whose name means son of encouragement. Barnabas was the guy who led their discipleship program. He was the one who saw all the men in the church mature and become godly leaders. So pleased to have Barnabas back. And then in walks Saul. Saul, the, the author of the letter to the Romans. Can't wait to get Saul on the preaching program finally work out what Romans chapter 7 is all about. (laughs) You know, as the leaders in Antioch pray and fast, the Holy Spirit speaks. And we don't know how. It may have been a direct word. It may have been a word from Scripture. It may have just been a strong sense of leading. But however it happened, the Holy Spirit spoke and directed them to set apart Saul and Barnabas for a specific mission. They sent out their best. Uh, 24 years ago now, I was involved in planting a church in the centre of Birmingham. Uh, That church grew from a, a group of 20 people meeting in the living room of a house to being over 300 people today. In those last 24 years, It has sent out eight people to lead church plants, including me, seven to be missionaries overseas, seven to be pastors of established churches, two to be lecturers in seminary, and another two are currently studying at seminary. That church sent out its best. Over the first seven years of City Church Manchester, we sent out, on average, one person a year to be a pastor or senior staff for another church. And we're not sending out those we want to get rid of. (laughs) They were gifted men and women, people we would have loved to retain on our staff, people we would have loved to have been the new senior pastor of our church. We sent out our best. 
because sending means sacrifice. It meant sacrifice for Antioch. It meant sacrifice for my former church in Birmingham. It will mean sacrifice for us in Manchester. And you know, it will mean sacrifice for you here in Palm Bay if you're going to follow the example of Antioch. Sending means sacrifice. But what's going to enable you to make that sort of sacrifice? I wonder whether you've heard of C.T. Studd. C.T. Studd was born in 1860, and he studied at Eton College, where Prince William and Prince Harry studied, and at Cambridge University. During his time at Cambridge, he played cricket for England. Now, I know you're, you're all Americans, you haven't got a clue what cricket is, okay? Cricket is what baseball could have been. <laughs> cricket takes place over five full days, and at the end of five days, it can still end in a draw. Don't you wish you played cricket? Well, having played cricket for England in 1884, C.T. Studd chose to cut short his glittering cricket career in order to become a missionary. People were shocked. They asked him why, and he explained his decision like this. He said, I know that cricket would not last, and honour would not last, and nothing in this world would last, but it was worthwhile living for the world to come. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. Friends, that's true, isn't it? We will hold things lightly. We will send out generously because we serve a God who has sent generously to us. Who for our sake did not spare his one and only son, but gave him up for us to die in our place, taking the punishment that we deserve for our sin. Sending means sacrifice empowered by our sacrificial saviour. Finally, sending requires courage. Uh, verses 4 to 12, Saul and Barnabas, they set out on a 16-mile journey to the port city of Seleucia, and from there they hitch a ride over to Cyprus. They, they land on the eastern side of the island, and then they set out on what was really just a preaching tour going from the east of the island over to the west, and they reached a new capital city, Paphos, in verse 6. Now, there in Paphos, they meet opposition in the shape of Elimas. Now, Elimas was a man full of contradictions. We're told in verse 6 that he was a Jew, yet he's also a sorcerer, even though sorcery is condemned by the Old Testament law. He's a false prophet, and yet he's also called Bar-Jesus, which means son of Jesus. Elimas, he is screwed up. It's a mess. Yet he's attached himself to the Roman proconsul. That's the governor of the island, a man named Sergius Paulus. And Sergius Paulus, he was a seeker. He wanted to know more about this God of the Bible. And so he sent for Saul and Barnabas, verse 7, because he sought to hear the word of God. But verse 8, Elimas opposed them seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. 
Friends, if we are sending, if we are proclaiming the word of God in the post-Christian West, or, or in any less reached territory, we are bound to meet both interest and opposition. That's what we've seen at City Church in Manchester. Not long after we launched, we had a visiting preacher, much like today. He was up front preaching, and then in through the doors, just over there, we similar set up at City Church, walked two men dressed only in pink pants. I don't mean trousers like you, I mean underwear. That was all they were wearing, coming in, shouting. Apparently, someone had told him to come along in those pink pants and see what we would do. At two of the last five Christmas carol services at City Church, we have had to hire in private security because of credible threats of physical harm to members of our church. At the most recent carol service, just a month ago, we had people at the entrance disrupting people, stopping them from coming in. And yet God still used that carol service to bring three people to faith. We will always meet both interest and opposition. And notice, would you, how the opposition in Cyprus came from within the religious establishment. That's so often what happens in mission and church planting. In the UK, the mainline churches, they've been in free fall for years. And in a desperate attempt to cling on to respectability in the culture, they have compromised again and again and again. They've jettisoned the gospel and ended up simply mirroring secular society. And because they're desperate to survive, they're generally hostile towards Bible-teaching churches. They label us fundamentalists. They criticize us for holding to, to extremist beliefs, nonsense about heaven and hell, the cross and judgment. Well, look at how Saul, now known as Paul, responds. Verse 9, he looks intently at Elimas and tells him straight. You see, mission requires courage. There is a time for the softly, softly conciliatory approach, but there is a time for a robust, no-holds-barred opposition. And that time comes when people try to turn other people away from Christ. We need to pray for courage in times like that. Uh, listen to C.T. Studd again. He said, some wish to live within the sound of a chapel bell. I wish to run a rescue mission within a yard of hell. Just look at how Sergius Paulus responds. Verse 12, then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, that he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now, I, I think we can read this and think, well, you know, it's all right for Paul. I mean, he was able to do this amazing miracle, sending LMS blind in order to bring Sergius Paulus to faith. It's all right for him. But notice, look again, it wasn't the judgment miracle that brought the proconsul to faith, it was the teaching of the Lord. Friends, how is the gospel going to impact the post-Christian West today? 
by churches sending and people going to courageously preach and teach the good news of Jesus. God uses his word to transform lives. He he uses it to save, to bring people from darkness to light, from hell to heaven. That's what he was doing in first century Cyprus. That is what he is doing today in 21st century Manchester and Palm Bay. Will we be part of it? Will you be part of it? Will you go? Will you give? Will you send? Someone has said this. Said the mark of a great church is not its seating capacity, but its sending capacity. Amen? That's what I want for City Church Manchester. And I'm sure that that is what you want for Covenant Church too. Such sending will be driven by worship, undergirded by sacrifice, and full of courage. May God in his abundant mercy bless our efforts. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, you said, go. Go and make disciples of all nations. Oh Lord, we long to be a church like the church in Antioch. We long to be a church that's transformed through our experience of your great salvation, the glory of being called from darkness to light, from being rebels against you to worshipers, to being children of the living God. And Lord, would that drive us out to send and to go, to call others to do what they were created to do. Oh Lord, as we look to your sacrificial sending of your son, would it drive us to sacrifice personally, to give away our time, our talents, our treasure, to send courageously and to go courageously, that many, many tongues may declare your praises for your glory and for our joy. Amen.